You're listening to the news on RTHK. Europe is on its back. Now it's really impacting everything. Economic efficiencies, which means some more job opportunities. More stable investment has been the preferred asset class. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The EU demands that Cyprus's capitulation as the Greek bailout costs spiral. The latest Greek twist sends the euro stock futures falling and oil also sinks. And Chinese securities have frantically tightened control on trading while partly blaming illegal behavior for the 30% drop that has wiped out trillions of dollars worth of market value in just three weeks. More updates on uh, the Greek situation today with our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Barry Wood. Then uh, IHS's uh, Brian Jackson will join us from mainland China to tell us more about uh, China's regulators' policy on the stock market. And our last guest this morning is Cheryl Wilson. She joins us to tell us more about her charity platform called Charitable Choice. Alex Wong, our regular Monday guest host, is uh, back today in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Marita. Alex, malicious short selling. Is this a crime or has China made it a crime? Well, I think uh, this is uh, China making it a crime. I think short selling actually uh, is, a, is done for profit. profit. I, I don't think uh, there's um, any evil behind it. Anyway, um, I think uh, uh, the market would stabilize for now at least, but um, uh, probably Hong Kong would suffer after this uh, China sell-off because uh, people uh, probably think uh, China would only intervene in the Asian market but would not help the extra market. But uh, foreigners actually um, uh, looking at um, this um uh, intervention as a negative thing. So that would, I think, uh, develop the Hong Kong market valuation. Okay, so you're not expecting too much positivity in Hong Kong and the Hong Kong markets. But, you know, short selling, you know, back to this issue of it being evil behavior. And I mean, this happens everywhere. We hear about this all over the world in every type of market. Is it really something that could possibly cause the rout in China? No, I think uh, this is uh, because uh, the market is uh, too highly leveraged. That is the fundamental problem. So when you see um, the sell to take to, to kick stocks, so um, during the decline, actually more selling would be triggered because uh, more people would need to stop the positions. So that the fundamental problem actually is highly leveraged positions, not the short sellers. I think the short sellers probably only accounted for a little part of uh, this uh, sell-off because um, in China, it is not too easy to, to do a massive source selling. Alex, another question that's coming in from our listeners. You know, copper has been suffering a decline. Uh, is this at all correlated to Chinese markets? No, actually, uh, there's some fundamental reason as well. Of course, uh, the stock market pressure uh, is, uh, is one thing. But another thing is that uh, China would uh, reduce its uh, copper usage in the uh, cable uh, they would try to use uh, other metals to substitute um, copper in the in the use of cable. So that means a huge reduction in demand, actually. 
But why is there this strong relationship between the Chinese stock market and copper? Oh, I think first of all, probably there's uh, some um, speculators uh, need to uh, cut their positions across, across the board. And then also, I think China uh, is viewed as a um, country which needs a lot of copper. So after, after the sell-off in the stock market, people think uh, the economy would be affected as well. So that is also affecting the perception of a demand of copper. All right, let's uh, look at the situation in Greece. On Sunday, uh, on Sunday's summit in Brussels, Euro area leaders presented Cyprus with a laundry list of unfinished business from previous bailouts that he'd pilloried in opposition and uh, during six turbulent months in office. They gave him three days to enact their main demands into Greek law in exchange for a third bailout in five years, this one worth 86 billion euros. The demands have been detailed by the Eurogroup finance ministers in a memo which the leaders are still discussing. Earlier, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras said that he was ready for a compromise. I'm here ready for an honest compromise. We owe that to the peoples of Europe who wants Europe united and not divided. We can reach an agreement tonight if all parties want it. But German Chancellor Angela Merkel warned that Greece would not be offered a further bailout at any cost. The situation is extremely difficult. On the one hand, there's the economic situation Greece is in, and that has worsened considerably over the past few months. And on the other hand, because the most important currency has been lost, trust and trustworthiness. That means we'll have difficult talks and there won't be an agreement at any cost. Well, the Greek government has yet to comment on the conditions which were detailed by the finance ministers in these meetings on Saturday and Sunday. An official in Brussels said that the document was very bad for Cyprus and the Greek people. Germany also floated the prospect of suspending Greece from the currency union. The euro fell after Greece was told that it must pass legislation on austerity austerity measures within three days before detailed negotiations with creditors on aid can begin. The euro is currently valued at 1.11 US dollars. The currency had risen 0.4% last week as creditors looked to nail down a deal. All right, let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent who joins us now from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita. Good morning, Alex. Barry, can you outline some of the details of this document that is so bad for Greece? Well, yes. They will have to uh, scale back the pensions. They will have to uh, raise the value-added tax. They will have to increase the corporate tax. And they will have to dismiss some workers. This is in the document that is circulated. Now, of course, it's 2 in the morning in Brussels, in fact, after that. And we don't know the final document, or indeed if there'll be an agreement, but it seems as if there will. Those are some of the things that they have to do. In other words, Renita, they have to do all the things they rejected in a referendum seven days ago. But uh, Cyprus's tone was quite conciliatory, at least uh, you know, from what we saw in the media. Hasn't he, in effect, agreed to you know, do some of these things? Well, of course, the Greeks had, over the last six months, agreed to do many of these things before, and they didn't implement them. They're very skilled at talking and not so skilled at implementing. I think that uh, what is going on 
is that after the celebrations of seven days ago in Athens with 61% of the people saying no to austerity, having the banks run out of money and people having to forage for open ATMs to get some cash, everything has changed. And the Greeks now realize that if they want to catch up with their arrears and get some of those debts paid, and indeed get more money, and then recapitalize the banks, they have no choice but to accede to what the creditors are demanding. And the Dutch, the Germans, and particularly the Finns are playing real hardball on these terms. Now, Barry, I, from what I understand, there are some things in the document that are really, uh, you know, coming to a tipping point. For example, uh, officials from Greece's creditors want to return to Athens with full access to government ministers and a veto over relevant legislation. Uh, that's one thing. 50 billion euros or 56 billion U.S. dollars of state assets uh, to be put into an independent Luxembourg-based company for sale. And they also want him to fire the workers that he hired in defiance of Greece's previous bailout commitments. Uh, What do you think about all of these? Well, I think it's pretty amazing, isn't it, when you think about it. Uh, You know, he hired back the workers that had been dismissed by the previous government, at least some of them. And of course, the troika, he didn't like the term troika. He went to the term institutions, those three institutions. They already had their people in Athens until he came to power, Mr. Tsipras, in January of this year. So in that sense, that's a rollback. What is new, of course, and what is particularly onerous is this idea that they would actually have to deposit money in this Luxembourg account. I'm not sure that's going to make it out of the leaders' meeting. Let's not forget this has been a crucial day in Brussels, as you have been reporting, Renita. But there was to have been a full European Union meeting of all 28 leaders. Now it's just the 19 Eurozone leaders. Nonetheless, it's been up and down all day. And I don't think we really know what's going to emerge, probably in a couple hours' time, certainly before dawn. But this is the way the European Union does business. Mm. It's being reported that Greece needs 22 billion euros by August. Is it realistic at all that they'll get it? Well, I think so. It's possible. It's possible. That's why the creditors... You see, until a week ago, we weren't talking new money. We were talking what was already in that second bailout program. Now they've defaulted to the International Monetary Fund. They've got another big payment up. So, of course, they're looking for money to pay back the creditors. The, the creditors are saying, hold it, you know, that's fine. We'll, we'll make sure that you can be okay with your creditors. But we want to make sure that this current project of simply spending more than you have and never planning to pay back your debts is over. And that's, I think, going to be the, the tough part. It's not at all clear, Renita, if the Greek government can survive this or if the Greek people are willing to endure this if the government tries to implement it. There's a lot of open questions still. Indeed. Now, Barry, one last question. What about the July 20th deadline when Greece has to pay the European Central Bank 3.5 billion euros? Is a deal likely before then? Well, you know, that's in the, in the time frame of today. You know, you can do a lot in 10 days' time. So I think that is indeed possible. But, Renita, the whole thing of what the Greeks are going to have to do, the Europeans now are saying, you know, hold it, we've 
played this game for six months with endless meetings. Now we really want some action, and that's why they're giving the Greeks, I mean, 72 hours to enact this. But yes, I think anything is possible. But let's not forget, the Greeks are in default, and the question before the Prime Minister of Greece is, do you want to stay in the euro or not? If you do, here's what you must do. All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood, and he is our international economics correspondent who joins us every Monday from Washington, D.C. Well, volatility has been the name of the game in Chinese stock markets, with regulators providing more policy support, but arguably failing to gain traction. Author and Pulitzer Prize winner Cheryl Dunn told Bloomberg that their actions really get at the legitimacy of the Communist Party. Well, when you think about it, it is entirely rational what they have done. So they have tamed the markets for the past two days, which is a major victory. Uh, And um, while it is a victory, it might be a Pyrrhic victory because it's a setback for reform. They have set as their central promise of the economic agenda that we will let the markets play a more decisive role in economic, uh, in the economy Mm -hmm. by 2020. So clearly they're more comfortable with a command and control economy. Right. But for for the Chinese Communist Party, for them, their legitimacy derives from economic performance. Mm. And now with 8.8% of uh, you know, all of the Chinese population investing in the stock market, that's a huge number when you think about 1.3 billion people. Um, for them, these people, of course, they don't want them protesting. They don't want unhappy investors protesting in the streets. But they also realize that this gets at their legitimacy because they are not raising the standards of living. They are not performing economically. Mm-hmm. So for them, this is a, you know, a government and a party with deep pockets. What's a little bit of a delay in reform when it gets at their legitimacy? All right, let's bring in IHS Global Insights China economist Brian Jackson, who joins us from Beijing. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Brian, uh, uh, last Friday, all markets were in the green. The the Shanghai and the Shenzhen composites uh, both closed up over 4% each, and the Hang Seng was up 2% as well. So does this mean that the government interventions are now working? Uh, it certainly seems like that is the case for the time being, although what I would add is a bit of caution, um, just specifically on the side of, well, how have the inter- interventions worked? Essentially what happened is that nearly 40% of the market on the 9th and 10th was actually frozen up um, due to uh, shares essentially being pulled off, and well, whereas an additional 40% was essentially frozen because of uh, within-day trading limits of 10% growth or falls. Um, so essentially what happened is the government managed to reduce the amount of turnover uh, by an enor- enormous margin um, to the degree where they could really control what the movement was going to be on what was available. Now, some of those markets are going to be unfrozen today. Is that right, Alex? Oh, yes. Uh, they probably would have uh, 200 companies uh, resume trading today. So, Brian, how will that uh, affect things going forth? Well, our expectation is that uh, the government is going to be relatively uh, cautious going forward, is that they've managed to arrest the slide now um, for two or three days in a row, uh, and that likely what's going to happen going forward is that the markets will indeed unfreeze and policy will uh, stabilize. Um, however, it's going to be at a relatively gradual pace, uh, you know, such that the government can still sort of keep a lid on things if necessary. 
Um, Brian, you know, prior to markets opening on July 8th, the China Insurance Regulatory Commission announced the lifting, uh, announced lifting the share of assets that insurance firms can invest in blue chips from 30 to 40 percent. We had a guest on this show a few months ago, Andrew Collier, who said, uh, that China insurance companies are becoming the new shadow banks. Do you agree? I can't comment specifically on if insurance companies are becoming the new shadow banks, but I just say that that policy change uh, is consistent with what we've seen earlier in these markets, which essentially is to encourage more investment by insurance companies, more investment uh, by uh, government pensions, et cetera, generally to increase the amount of institutional investment in these markets, which traditionally are much more retail-dominated than in other countries. Brian, why is the government interfering so severely in, uh, you know, what should be regularly functioning capital markets? Uh, well, I'd say that there's uh, two major possible narratives, and I think the first one, which um, which sort of is the easier one to, to latch onto, is because of essentially growth targets, economic growth targets. However, if we dig a bit deeper into the importance of the Chinese stock market. Um, to the rel- to the real economy, uh, that seems less likely. Uh, new financing in China, only about 5% of that comes from the stock market. Um, industrial profits, a larger share has come from stocks in recent months, but not huge compared to historic norms of around 5%. Um, whereas household assets, we're talking less than 10% of household assets within stocks in China. Um, so from many angles, it's relatively... Uh, unlikely that it's because of economic growth, except for specifically the contribution coming from the financial sector to GDP, which which would certainly be a hit. I think more likely is because the government over the last year or so uh, through state media has attached enormous rhetorical importance uh, to the stock market rise as part of a major pillar of their reform program. Um, So even though it might not be crucial to the economy today, uh, it's crucial uh, in a political sense. and, And in that sense, they do need to defend it. Alex, what do you think here? Brian clearly agrees with Cheryl Dunn that, you know, this is perhaps about the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, because uh, very luckily we are not having a very important stock market in China yet. Otherwise, the uh, crash would, uh, would have a very big damage. Uh, I think uh, uh, right now um, the the point is uh, because they have promoted it uh, so severely, um, so so heavily uh, in the last year. So they they want to keep a good image. Otherwise, I think uh, they probably would think uh, people would would be very unhappy and, and and question the government. So that that is the main reason. I think not economic reason. I agree. And Brian, going forward, what what are you expecting? Uh, well, we expect that. Um for example, in the coming quarter, it'll certainly be the case that they, again, ease up on some of these restrictions and sort of promote the market moving back towards looking more like an actual market. Um, however, a concern that we have is that essentially they may have scared many of the investors who would be interested in this uh, market because um, clearly there's a huge amount of not just economic volatility, but policy volatility. All right, Brian, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Brian Jackson, and he is uh, the China economist at IHS Global. Well, we'll be back to talk more about a charity for charities. That's right after this. The time is now 8.22 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora.
Well, do you ever get the feeling that you'd like to contribute to a charity, but you are worried about the administration pocketing the cash rather than distributing it to those in need. Our next guest is the founder of Charitable Choice, established in 2010 and headquartered in Hong Kong. This is a charity that provides a consolidated donation platform for charity givers. Let's bring in Cheryl Wilson, the founder. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning, Renita. Cheryl, tell us about your business model. Well, our business model, I mean, we're a registered charity here in Hong Kong, so we are definitely not-for-profit, and our mission is to promote charitable gifting for a better Hong Kong. It's very much a We Love Hong Kong passion project, um, and we've worked, we're working with about 43 local charities to help them raise funds um, for some programs that address some pressing needs here in Hong Kong. But uh, why would a charity giver, a donor, uh, go through your company, your charity, I should say, rather than going directly to their charity of choice? Yes, I guess for us, I mean, our, you know, how we raise funds for um, charities here in Hong Kong is we provide an interactive charitable giving platform. So our platform allows people to um, actually make donations on behalf of others um, and also to establish personal giving pages if they would like to raise funds for up to three local charities. Um, so it's very much an interactive and, and fun platform that can be used by individuals and also by corporates. And is it the first of its kind here? Uh, yes, we believe so. Okay. So who, are, for example, are your charity partners? What sorts of charities? Large ones, small ones? Oh, it's a, a variety. We do work with some uh, large, very well-known brands, uh, brand names here in the charity field here in Hong Kong. For and example? Also, for example, Polongkok, um, SPCA, Mother's um, Choice, uh, names that people would all be familiar with. And we also have, a, you know, out of the 43, there are also some very small, uh, relatively unknown charities, um, such as Inspiring Hong Kong Sports Festival. Foundation, um, who are you know fairly new and providing sports programs uh, to the underprivileged youth here in Hong Kong. So we, we try and provide a range of small, medium and large uh, charities for people to choose from. And on what basis do you go about selecting these charities? Like if, if I had a charity and I wanted to sign up for your list, what is the criteria that you're looking for? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we do accept nominations from regular users of our platform, and that's uh, that's how the platform has grown over the years. Um, we do, as I said, our focus is very much Hong Kong. So the charities that we accept have to be running actively running programs that make Hong Kong a better place. Um, but we do conduct regular visits to these charities, so we do vet them. Um, uh, and we also uh, ensure that their services aren't sort of very similar to another charity that we've got on the platform because we want to provide a variety. Um, so that's how we go about it. So, you know, this uh, brings up the point of due diligence. You, of course, you said that you go regularly, you vet them. How do you actually ensure that the money that uh, the donors are providing actually gets to where it needs to go? Mm. Well, I guess we do the best that we can. We, we double check that they are registered here in Hong Kong. So we check their certification. We uh, their annual reports and their financial statements. We do then conduct visits to their premises. We uh, observe their programs that they're running um, to ensure that they are providing uh, services to the community and we can better understand the services that they provide. Um, and we maintain regular contact with them throughout the year. Um, so through this process, we have, uh, over the in the last two to three years, identified a few charities that actually became dormant during that time, ceased operations, or some that had received uh, some serious complaints from their service users. And we We've then removed them from the platform. So I guess we, we do that to the best of our ability. We try and keep in touch with them and, and to better understand what they're doing. Now, Cheryl, I'm assuming, you know, yours is a year-round initiative. Yes, and it doesn't definitely. have sort of certain points during the year where it peaks, right? Uh, yeah. 
So, you know, I mean, this is a, a question that, you know, a lot of people in Hong Kong are, ask, um, you know, there are certain times during the year, usually towards the holidays. Yes, definitely. Yep, the end of the year towards Christmas time and then Chinese New Year again, when charities or nonprofit organizations are actively looking for donors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people complain about donor fatigue. How do you deal with that? Uh, we do actually find, I mean, you know, our platform raises funds consistently throughout the year, but we do find that there is still a, a peak at Christmas time, especially, um, where individuals and corporates feel a little bit more generous and, and want to give. Um, with us, yeah, I mean, with donor fatigue, I guess, uh, you know, because we provide such a variety of services, it can be someone celebrating their birthday or um, a corporate celebrating their anniversary. Um, so we do sort of distribute, you know, the, the milestones, I guess, that are celebrated throughout the year. Year. So there isn't that much uh, fatigue. All right. Well, that's definitely good to know. How can a charity uh, sign up to be a member of your list? Um, they can definitely contact us through our website. Uh, we do definitely give preference, though, to charities that are nominated to the regular users of our platform. Nominated um, by? By, uh, by individuals who, who make donations on behalf of others via our online platform or corporates that use our platform to raise funds for charities. So we do accept nominations from those users. Um, but we, we consider the list once a year. So the board sits around and, and we discuss which charities we, sh- we should add to the platform. And then we conduct visits uh, to each and every one of them. And we have to sign legal agreements with each charity before adding them on to the platform. And tell us quickly before we close where we can find out more information. Uh, Charitablechoice.org.hk. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Cheryl Wilson, and she is the founder of Charitable Choice. Well, uh, time to take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is up uh, seven-tenth of a percent this morning to 19,934. Uh, Australia's ASX 200 index down half a percent to 5,452 and Sol's Kospi up 0.17 percent to 2,034. In currencies, one euro is 1.11 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 122.54 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and one cent or one US dollar and 55 cents. Gold is currently valued at 1,100 and $61 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $58.08. Well, Alex, here we are at uh, the end of a Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you expecting uh, for the local markets? You, Hong Kong, you already said we might see a little bit of uh, upheaval here. What about the rest of the region? Oh, well, I think uh, Hong Kong actually itself may not be too bad, but uh, the the AH discrepancy actually would increase further from an in, in, in already very high level because people view Asia as an um, uh, intervene market. So that's why I think Asia probably would be stronger than X shares. And then uh, the markets actually depends on the, the development in Greece. I think the, probably they would uh, be trading sideways until something new uh, coming out from Greece. Uh, and for China, it is now difficult to guess because... Uh, Right now, people pop, there are there are two kind of thinkings. First, uh, first kind is that uh, the intervention actually tilted the market. The second kind is that they come and put at four, so the market may rise further from here. All right, Alex. Thank you so much. I guess it's a waiting game. That's Alex Wong, and he is the director of asset management at Ample Capital. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast today. It'll be mainly fine with a visibility visibility. Uh, relatively low over some areas. Temperature right now is 30 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 76%.
Time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. Eurozone leaders are still locked in talks at an emergency summit trying to find a compromise that would enable Greece to avoid running out of money and to keep the single currency. The Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras is anxious to strike a deal before any Greek banks collapse, a prospect which could be just days away. Eurozone finance ministers met earlier and now their leaders are going through a list of proposals to be agreed. The Finnish finance minister Alexander Stubb outlined some of them. Number one, it needs to implement laws by the 15th of July. Number two, uh, tough conditions on, for instance, labor reform and uh, pensions and VAT and taxes. Uh, And then number three, quite tough measures also uh, on, for instance, privatization and privatization funds. And uh, this whole package has to be approved by both the Greek government and the Greek parliament. And then we'll have a look. Thousands of people trying to get in and out of Bali's international airport remain in limbo this morning after more flights were cancelled due to a volcanic ash cloud. Radio Australia's Justine Carney reports. The volcanic ash cloud from Mount Raung in East Java has been disrupting hundreds of flights for days and has seen thousands of people, including Australian tourists, stranded in Bali. 